Shona Thompson for Bill Kelly. Today on the podcast, child psychiatrist Dr. Jean Clinton from McMaster University on a maturity delay in kids because of being out of school and at home during the pandemic. Stephen Seidman of Carleton University and director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network on NATO's no to the no-fly zone and what next week's NATO Leaders Summit may include for Ukraine. Some education security for Ontario's publicly funded college students now that OPSU and the College Employers Council have decided on binding in Interest arbitration. We speak with Heather Jardine Tuck of the Opsu Local at Mohawk College. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I've had several discussions with friends who are parents and friends who are teachers and some who are both. And they've said they've noticed a certain lack of maturity in at least some children. Something of a maturity deficit, if we can put it that way. Well, they're putting it down to kids being at home and not interacting with other children. Some went so far as to suggest it's about a two-year delay. So, say, a teen in grade 9 is behaving like a kid in grade 7. So I thought I'd check this out further with an expert. Dr. Jean Clinton is an author, child psychiatrist, and clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences at the Michael G. DeGroot School of Medicine. And she joins us now. I wanted to thank you very much, Dr. Clinton. I know you're very busy, so I really appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate the invite. Thanks very much, Shana. So the situation that I laid out, that parents seem to be noticing something of a maturity delay or deficit in their children, um, is is that something that uh, people are noticing in general? Is this, is this happening? Yeah, well, you know, it's a really interesting observation because what we do know is uh, uh, that children and young people, you're talking about grade 7 to, and grade, uh, grade 9, um, what they they learn the social skills and how to develop re, uh, friendships and relationships when they're surrounded by their peers. So I'm really not surprised that people are finding that without you know through COVID, without that um, uh, without that um, contact with their peers, they're not uh, they're not evolving in the same kind of way that they might have done previously. So I think that's one aspect. I think the second aspect is that uh, because of COVID, um, um, parents have actually been spending much more time with um, uh, with their kids, and the um, uh, they they may be um, they may be having a bit of uh, unrealistic expectations about what they're going through. Um, you know, the, the social isolation that our teens are telling us has been really, really hard on them. Um, uh, but it's interesting, Shauna, the kids who have been able to get outside, to get outside and play, whether it's, you know, even informal kind of sport um, or volunteer as we're coming out of COVID, they're describing much better health. So on the one hand, hmm, we've got a bit of a worry, but on the other hand, we've got the solution, which is great news. Well, I thought the uh, example that was uh, laid out that was expressed to me of uh, a kid in grade nine or a teen in grade nine behaving like a, a kid in grade seven was particularly interesting because in grade nine, of course, you're starting high school, you're going to be interacting with older children who may have more set patterns of behavior. And so this maturity deficit would be even more noticeable, I would think. 
Yeah, well, you know, I would, uh, my instinct is to steer away from something like a, um, uh, like labeling it as a maturity deficit. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I hate, I hate, um, I hate thinking of labeling things. I think that it's more that they've got, they've got new opportunities in high school that they're going to learn from their peers. The grade nines, you know, the minor niners, um, uh, don't do a lot of interacting with the older ones so I wouldn't be as I don't wouldn't be as worried about older ones kind of looking down and saying you know these kids are that this it has always been thus you know that the minor niners and the tiny tenors um, uh, they've always they've always had a different place in the um, in the school hierarchy so I don't think as a parent I would be worrying that they're going to be centered out for this immature behavior but what I can tell tell you, um, uh, without doubt, you know, with 30 years plus in child psychiatry, is uh, we have a massive desire to grow. And so these grade nine kids are going to be looking around at what the other kids in grade nine are up to, what's in, what's out, um, how, you know, what makes you, what makes you um, a, a friend, what makes you a good friend, all of those things and their identity, all of those things are are going to be evolving as they um, as they should in a normal kind of way. It may be a bit later, maybe lagging. I might I might be all right with, but deficit. I would uh, I, I would I would be staying clear of a of, of a label like that. You know, my I always say labels are for jam jars, <laughs> not uh, not for kids. Okay, I'll never use that term again. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I w- thought it was really interesting what you were saying about um, kids and the social interaction and, and really being in in touch with each other and just playing and how important that is. And uh, at least they've been able to start on that path in the last several weeks and months. Yeah, absolutely. We are a, spo- a social species, Shauna. We are absolutely wired to connect, and and uh, and you know when it comes to when it comes to adolescence, and you know adolescence now starts at nine and goes on until about 25, 28 years of age. Like the brain structures are are being pruned all the way through that time period. Well, and and what we know, the big huge drive is to affiliate with your peers. It's to it's to explore novel situations. It's to um, it's to explore um, what am I good at? What to, where do I fit in? Um, and and kids are going to have that drive and and do that. So now as the as things are opening up and kids are able to have other adults in their lives, like coaches and what have you, as the sports opens up, um, as they're going to be able to have um, uh, clubs at school, um, having other adults to model for them, then new relationships are going to be built. And so not only are we a social species that we need to have each other to grow, but relationships are the absolute nutrient of that growth. So um, I've, I've, I'm one of the ones who have been really shouting out saying, let's get our kids back to school. You know, we should never have been talking about social distancing. We should have been talking about physical distancing, but emotionally connected. Well, I thought it was interesting what you said about uh, uh, the relationship with coaches, because obviously there's been a lack of organized sports and and contained in organized sports. 
there are certain cues about working with other people, um, societal structures. There are a lot of other lessons that are learned there. They're huge. You know, the um, when we think about when we think about uh, different areas of development, you know, there's physical development, which you know the the uh, grade nines are going through tons, but there's also social and emotional development. Um, and in social development, um, you you really need to become aware of 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 the the social rules, but you need to become aware of yourself as well. And we become aware of ourselves not only through introspection, you know looking inside, but um, uh, uh, checking yourself out against others. And um, sports and and clubs and drama, all of those things are are just so fantastic um, uh, for all of that, um, all of that development. So, you know, the kind of social awareness, self-awareness, learning how to problem solve. So kids have been doing that through COVID, but just not to the same scale as they're now going to be able to now that we're back, now that we're back in full force. I don't think, well, certainly in our lifetime, we've ever had quite a situation like this. Um, Do you you know if studies are being done or being considered about the impact on children uh, about being home for so long and and the impact that has on, on their psyches? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a big study actually here in Hamilton uh, going on through the um, uh, the Offord Centre uh, and McMaster, looking at at various times um, uh, through COVID, starting early um, when it was just starting, and they're looking at several waves, um, um, uh, talking, asking kids as well as parents about how they've experienced it. And uh, there was just a big study released uh, from JAMA Pediatrics um, surveying kids in terms of their mental health and well-being. Um, uh, and so that's shown that there's for sure has been an increase in anxiety and depression um, in, uh, uh, in kids nine to, I think their group was nine to 19. Um, we've seen an increase in um, eating disorders. CHEO has been reporting that. So that's on the, on the one hand, people are surveying and seeing how our kids doing, but um, other people are looking at it from the not so much ill health as what, 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 has, what positives have come out of COVID? And, and one of my buddies, um, uh, Josh Fullen from Maximum City, uh, based in Toronto, they've done, he's doing ongoing surveys at different points in time as well, partnering with a, a McMaster scientist as well, by the way. Um, and what he's seeing is that there has, in fact, in a certain group, in about a third of the kids, there's been an increase in empathy. And there's been an increase in desire for citizen action. So, you know, it's certainly not all gloom and doom. And another big finding, uh, which is the good news, is that if kids have been able to get outside, interact and play, then they report better self um, uh, self-health. So they, they self-report, sorry, better health. And so the big message is it's, it's play connection is going to be a huge part of the solution as we come through, um, as we come through these times. Well, I think it's really interesting what you're saying, because there can be a real tendency to focus on the crisis and the negative and the worry and all of the bad stuff with this. It's interesting to hear that there are some positives that are coming out of it as well. 
There are, and you know, there's lots of survey information that show that the kids have been saying that they've appreciated being more home with their families, that they have um, uh, one that they've appreciated and enjoyed uh, being home um, with their families. But the second thing is uh, that's really important for parents to hear about is kids are talking about how worried they are about how worried and stressed their parents are. Well, so kids are picking up on parents uh, on, on on parent stress. So um, that's something that we need to be we need to be paying attention to and thinking about. Well, um, as adults in kids' lives, I need to be putting my own mask and finding my own calm in order to be there for my kids and not have them stressed out about my stress. I've I've been so concerned about parents through this because it is quite a juggling act. You know, you've got the concerns about this health crisis. You've got concerns about the psychological impact this might be having on your your kids, um, and then your kids being worried about you and and having to adjust all of that to the individual child that's in your life. Absolutely, it has been it has been an absolutely. Um, horrific time for parents and again surveys are showing this Shauna um, uh, the Ontario Parent Survey showed I think it was about 59% of parents were saying that they were very significantly depressed and anxious um, um, uh, through uh, through COVID um, uh, about all of the things you know that all of the burden that parents have had to bear um, but what 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 the families who are doing well um, uh, through it, even with all of the burdens, we know about what resilience looks like. You know, so resilience is the ability to kind of bounce, but you know, take stuff happening to you and get the resources that you need to get yourself out of it. So uh, the resilient families are the ones who have been able to make sure that they're not socially isolated, that they that they reach out to others. Um, uh, that they, even though, you know, you have to be socially distanced, if you can have connection, then you're going to do far, far better than being, uh, than being socially isolated. They also, uh, the, the research shows that um, resilient adults are ones who say, you know, sometimes life just bloody sucks and there's nothing I can do about it. So I am going to just... When I fall in that pile of manure, I'm going to pick myself up, brush myself off and get on with it. I'm not going to waste a single brain cell saying, why me? What's going on? And they also focus on the things that they have control over and say, I'm not going to waste my brain energy on worrying about things I've got no control over. I'm going to put my focus on the things I absolutely can do something about it. And they stop and they say, are, are, my think, are my thoughts making me sick or are they helping me? And they intentionally choose that. Now, you don't, you don't change to that way of thinking overnight, but at least planting the seed here, Shauna, people can start saying, you know, I can control some of the stuff going on around me. I can, I can, I can diminish the pattern of the stress in my life by, you know, uh, uh, by certain behaviors. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's great to know that there is work being done on these issues. So at least with uh, regards to a child's maturity and where it quote unquote ought to be, um, relax, the kids are going to be okay? 
They are, you know, they are. They have such a drive. It, 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 you know, it depends on the adults in their life. If the if the adults in their lives, and they, I, I can tell you that the uh, uh, here in, in Hamilton, the boards have been doing a phenomenal job of thinking about how should kids be coming back to school and how can we make sure that they feel connected, that they feel a strong sense of belonging, that academics is not the top job right now, but in fact it is about, um, uh, about meeting the kids where they are. So if we've got adults in their lives and parents who are saying, you know, the kids are going to be all right, I'm going to, I'm going to find my calm and be there for my kids. If the, if the adults and kids' lives are doing that, then the kids are going to be all right. But if the adults are fretting and saying, oh my gosh, you know, there's this huge learning loss and this, you know, you know, I don't want to bug you, but you know, this, this deficit and, and their development and, you know, it's a glitch, they're never going to get over it. Then the kids are going to, you, you know, you live your, you live your, your words. Um, uh, and so it depends on the adults around, but um, I think, I think with, uh, um, uh, with people like you, Shauna, shining a light on these issues, the kids are going to be, the majority of kids are going to be just all, just A-OK. Dr. Clinton, thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for bringing the issue up, Shauna. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This week, NATO defense chiefs met in Brussels about the invasion of Ukraine and Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg briefed reporters on what the ministers decided to provide significant support to Ukraine, including with uh, military supplies, financial help, and humanitarian aid. He says NATO's new posture should include substantially more forces in the eastern part of the alliance at a higher readiness and with more pre-positioned equipment and supplies, more allied air power, and strengthened integrated air and missile defense. Stoltenberg also had a message for Putin. President Putin must stop this war immediately. Withdraw his forces now and engage in diplomacy in good faith. But that still leaves the question of Ukraine and the pleas of President Volodymyr Zelensky for a no-fly zone. Well, here's what U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said. There's no, no easy or simple a way to do this. No, there's no such thing as a no-fly zone light. Uh, a no-fly zone means that you're in, in, a, in a conflict with Russia. To give us his perspective is Steve Seidemann, who holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. He's also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Shana. One of the key asks from Zelensky of both Canada and the U.S. in his addresses this week was for that no-fly zone, and that seems like it's not going to happen. No, it's not, because that would require NATO, Canada, the United States, and others to be at war with Russia. A no-fly zone requires us to shoot at Russian planes and also shoot at Russian anti-aircraft facilities. That would be in, that would be in Ukraine, Belarus, and even Russia itself, and that would be war. And so I think Zelensky is using that uh, ask, a request, to try to bargain other stuff out of NATO. So, for instance... The billion dollars that Biden promised this week, I think, is 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 going to pass in part because they say we can't do everything, we can't do this thing you want, but we can do this, we can give you this help. So I think that's, I think ultimately this is a bargaining strategy by Zelensky because I think he understands that that enough lies on is not going to happen. 
NATO leaders are to meet next Thursday. When they travel to meet, that usually means something big is about to happen. Yes, uh, they don't. They usually meet every year, every uh, over the year, and they usually a well planned agenda, and they usually know ahead of time what the deliverables are going to be. In this case, it's obviously a, an extraordinary meeting happening at a very short notice. But I think uh, the clip that you played ahead of time with Jens Stolenberg's uh, list of, of items will suggest what's on the agenda, which is reshaping what has been a what has been seen as a temporary and small commitment to deterring the Russians and reassuring the allies in the East. It's called the Enhanced Forward Presence Mission, and they may change the name of it to something else to indicate that it's not just enhanced, it's not just presence, it's going to be something longer lasting involving more troops, more planes, more equipment, and Canada's going to be asked to step up and provide some of that stuff. Do we have stuff to provide? Sure, we have a, we have a military, uh, and, and it's a pretty competent military at that. Uh, this will strain maybe the calf a little bit, but remember, we had 3,000 troops in Kandahar for, engaged in a violent combat for you know, five or six years, uh, we're not going to reach that level of intensity, and we're probably not going to reach that level of size. We currently have 500 troops in Latvia. Uh, it's being supplemented now. Uh, we just sent another ship, so we now have two ships floating off in the Baltics. Um, we wrote, we've been rotating uh, every, like, once a year, once every two years, uh, six fighter planes to uh, police the skies above Romania and, tra- and to train with the Romanians. So I could see us uh, having that rotational mission be more often or just basing six planes in Romania or someplace nearby on a more permanent basis. One of the things that has changed is that there was a lot of reticence about making these deployments permanent, particularly in the past by the Germans, because we had made an agreement in 1997 with the Russians that there would be no permanent NATO deployments in the East. But since the Russians have broken every other part of that agreement, I think what we're going to see next week is an announcement that that agreement is dead for all intents and purposes. And that means that we will have longer lasting deployments. Trudeau has already said that instead of just saying we're going to renew that mission in Latvia uh, for another rotation or two, he said it will go on indefinitely. And that that's getting closer to permanent. Well, one of the things that I think is important uh, for Canada in this whole situation is that Russian ha- Russia has been making incursions in our Arctic waters. Uh, you know, I know that Putin has said categorically he wants the North Pole, more importantly, the natural resources that lie beneath it. And uh, and he's been kind of elbowing his way and uh, uh, checking a bit with Canada, and we have a weakness in that area. Yes, but so do they. That is, the Arctic is an incredibly difficult place to operate, uh, and when we think about the Russians spending a lot of money on their Arctic equipment, their Arctic defenses, we have to remember that their Arctic is bigger than our Arctic and that their passage is much more viable than our passage, that we worry about people passing through the Northwest Passage. Well, they have the Northern Passage and it goes a long, long way and combine that with the Russian fear of invasion and the traditional sense of Russian security from that particular direction. You can see the Russians are investing a lot in the Arctic, not so much so they can aggress against us, but so that way they can defend their Arctic. So we shouldn't be that worried about their investments. And I, my punchline about this is usually that if the Russians take a random Canadian island way up in the north, the problem won't be defeating them. It'll probably be rescuing them. Because what Ukraine has demonstrated is the Russian ability to do logistics for a country next door to Russia is, is not doing too well. Well, imagine trying to 
feed and support anything over the long stretches of the Arctic. So we need to invest more, and we are. We have these Arctic offshore patrol ships that are coming offline. Uh, they're actually the first ships that, that have been, are being built by the government. And the first one is pretty much ready to go. The second one is being tested now. I think we've made a fair amount of progress there. Obviously, we made a, need to make a decision about the next fighter aircraft and, and uh, Minister of Defense Anand mentioned this as this decision is forthcoming when she spoke last week in, in Ottawa. So I think we're making progress, but anything that we do in the Arctic is incredibly expensive. And so if we do more there, then we may have to do less elsewhere. And that's something we have to take them off, keep in mind. Well, it's also expensive for anybody who's interested in there. And the Russian economy is not doing too well right now. <laughs> no, it's been punished pretty heavily by the sanctions. And nobody would have expected the sanctions to be this deep, this wide that, uh, a month ago. And so the Russian economy is taking a huge hit. And, but it was already going to be taking a hit anyway because it's, a, it's an oil exporting country with very little else to offer the world uh, under the, cur- the government's current leadership. And oil, obviously, is being facing a lot of tensions in, in, in the world. Yes, we need oil right now, but we're all trying to move away from it. And also Russia's population is in decline. And so... Russia, as a country and as an economy, was in uh, decline before this, and now they've been faced with some of the harshest sanctions I can possibly remember. Well, with the harshness of these sanctions, how fast they've been imposed, how wide-reaching they are, one of the thoughts I had was that the invasion of Ukraine was a miscalculation by Mm -hmm. Putin because he may have thought that the world economy was in worse shape because of all the bailouts for COVID than it actually is, and he may have miscalculated the response. Yeah, I think he miscalculated a number of things. He miscalculated how effective his army was. Uh, he was lied to about uh, how good the army was. Uh, he was he miscalculated the resolve of the Ukrainians, which is, I really think, the most important aspect of the year. He thought the Ukrainians would, would surrender within a few days. We're absolutely not seeing that. And I think one of the more understandable miscalculations was he didn't really quite uh, grasp how much uh, his invasion uh, would unify the, much of the world against him. That a month and a half ago, there were a lot of discussions about potential sanctions, but it seemed like the Germans weren't going to play very hard on that. Um, the Nord Stream 2, this whole pipeline to, of sending gas to, to Europe, uh, seemed to give uh, a lot of leverage to the Russians. And uh, so they underestimated the ability of the West to unite. But on the other hand, the West wasn't sure it would unite until these things happened. Uh, it had a real galvanizing effect, and that's often what happens. Uh, and it kind of happened in 2014 when 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 Russia seized Crimea, and so he should have been able to expect that now. But he has a circle of yes men, and he, and they were wildly overconfident, didn't want to send him bad news. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something else because you know we're trying to glean what we can about what's really going on, um, and it's very difficult because obviously you know what they say about. Uh, truth and war, it being the first casualty. But um, one of the things that really stuck out to me was um, Joe Biden uh, describing Putin as a murderous dictator, a, a thug, and a war criminal. Prime Minister Trudeau, before leaving Warsaw, also referred to Putin as a war criminal, something pretty unusual for world leaders to be saying and using that kind of language, particularly Biden, because of his background in international diplomacy. What can we glean from this? Well, you notice this language just picked up the past couple of weeks. I mean, aggression, invading a country out of the blue to, to conquer part of it is, is considered a war crime. And 
so that that was something that was that you know that they could have been saying you know on day one, but it's really been the past week or so because with the Russian offensive failing uh, to do get that swift victory, they've resorted to uh, basically destroying the cities of, of of Ukraine. That there's been a a lot of civilians who've been killed very deliberately, and that is what has been the source of this um, rhetoric the past uh, couple of days because the Russian forces are committing war crimes. They're targeting civilians quite directly. And, uh, and this is, you know, there, there's a lot of opposition to, to what, what Putin is doing. Putin is obviously doing this because he failed to, to defeat the Ukrainians quickly. And this is a way to gain leverage. He's trying to get the Ukrainians to surrender by imposing great costs, just like we're trying to get the Russians to back down by imposing great economic costs. Uh, so this is part of the bargaining process on his part. And on our part, we're calling him out. Uh, will Vladimir Putin ever appear in The Hague for war crimes uh, trial? I, I tend to doubt it. But I also didn't expect to see Slobodan Milosevic hang out there either. So uh, that was the leader of, of Serbia during the 1990s wars of aggression that, that Serbia fought against its neighbors. Um, so the, the destruction of civilians, the, the targeting of civilians, is clearly getting a lot of attention this week. Well, we're hearing a lot about um, uh, the efforts of the world to try to, one thing that they should consider is giving Putin an off-ramp, uh, a way to get out of this and declaring something a win or that he can take back uh, some kind of um, uh, a victory um, and and back out of this. But I'm wondering if there might be some signaling going on to other powers that might be both inside and outside of the Kremlin, that if you turn Putin over as a war criminal, and you back out of, of Ukraine, that there might be an easier end to this? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know if it makes sense for us to try to facilitate regime change in Russia, because that will cause Putin to double down. And uh, it's also been the case in the past that the more we help those types of people, the less legitimate they become. Uh, in the eyes of the Russian people. So I think the best way to facilitate regime change in Russia is for us to stay entirely out of it. Um, I do think that, you know, it's, it's hard to, to get into Putin's mind, but it would be nice for us to be able to give him some way out so that way he doesn't have to escalate further. Uh, so you've already seen Zelensky talk about, well, n- membership of Ukraine and NATO is really not in the cards anytime in the future so we can negotiate that and so there are negotiations going on the question is what are the russians uh what can they take home that they can declare victory and what can the ukrainians accept and so that's where i see this war going is that there'll eventually be negotiated settlement and the question will be what is a significant enough fig leaf or off-ramp for for putin to say it was worth you know five seven ten thousand soldiers lives and the economic carnage that is wrought on my, my my country, but in the past, other other the dictators have lost multiple wars and stayed in power. It, you know, think about back to Saddam Hussein. He lost many wars that were pretty catastrophic, and he was able to stick around for a long, long time. So I'm hoping that Putin looks at that that example. Yeah, with with not wanting to um, declare a no fly zone, as you mentioned off the top, uh, it's it's clear that NATO does not want to get into a direct conflict here. But is a battle with NATO something that Putin doesn't want just as much? Well, if he wants to stay in power, if he wants to, if he wants to be alive, he wants Moscow to stay intact. Uh, 
I don't think he wants a war with with NATO. I think he, what he wants to do is divide NATO. And uh, the challenge has been that everything he's done the past eight years is unified NATO. Uh, that NATO was spending less money every year in, in the late aughts and early 2010s. And uh, they were, there was a lot of division with the NATO about whether the priority should be the East or the South. That is migration from North Africa and East and uh, Middle East. And now NATO is fully uh, unified in realizing that the primary threat is indeed in the East and that they should be spending more money. So he has done exactly the opposite of what he wanted or his, his, his uh, policies have had the op opposite impact. So I don't think he's looking for war with, with, with NATO. And if you think about how the war has been prosecuted thus far, he has respected that bright, shiny line between NATO and non-NATO countries quite closely. Well, and obviously that's the reason why he's been so against any move by Ukraine to try to uh, get into NATO, even though uh, Zelensky's already put off, um, sent off an application to join. That doesn't seem like that's going to go anywhere. Well, that was never going anywhere before this because NATO was divided about it because since 2014, Ukraine has essentially been at war with Russia. Russians have had forces in, in, in Ukraine ever since uh, 2014. And so include, involve, inviting Ukraine into NATO would have meant having a war with Russia. So we, that, that was never in the cards. And a lot of the European countries were never really that thrilled about Ukraine as a member anyway, because they just thought it stretched the alliance beyond its the credibility breaking point. So that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and I, what really was at stake here in 2022 was not Ukraine and NATO, but Ukraine and the European Union, uh, the success of Zelensky, because this was all threatening the ability for Russia to dominate Ukraine and sending a, an alternative role model to the neighborhood about how one could thrive by not following the Russian pathway. Yeah, getting accurate information about anything that's been going on in a war zone is a very difficult thing, let alone what's going on inside Russia, let alone what's going on inside the Kremlin. Are there any indications um, from what you've seen of what might be going on uh, within the Kremlin and within the, the power group there? It's really hard to tell what's going on here. One of the most striking things has been that he keeps firing some of the top people within his, his government. So if anybody has any questions about whether the war is going well or not, uh, you can see that it's going poorly for the Russians. You can see he's fired multiple elite people within the military, within the intelligence apparatus, within his decision-making circles. So he's looking for people to blame. Um, and if I were in his government, I'd be really worried uh, because of this policy. And I, I don't know whether the, the right op, uh, stance for those people is to, to get close to Putin and assure him that everything's swell or to, to try to overthrow him. But he's definitely engaged in some anger and some uh, retribution against those around him. And, and that, that is worrying. Well, I mean, it, that's sort of, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that you are the leader, you are the central power uh, in Russia, and yet blame everybody else for what's happened when this was largely your decision. Well, I can blame them for giving him the wrong inputs to make the decision or for badly implementing the decision. Uh, dictators frequently blame everybody else but themselves. They tend, their self-awareness tends not to be that great. Um, we only have about a minute left. Do you see Putin staying in power when all of this is said and done? I still think that's more likely than not, but it's hard to tell. Uh, we really don't know what's in the minds of the people around him and what their capabilities are. Uh, but he's been very successful at repression for many years now. And uh, it, it's one of these things where you really don't know what's going to happen until it happens. So I, I don't think it's likely 
that 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 he will lose power. But it's more likely now than it was a month and a half ago. Well, and especially since we're in such a, an information vacuum uh, from the Soviet Union, boy, is that going back uh, from Russia, uh, certainly since they've uh, lowered a, a veil of secrecy around their country. I thank you so much for your time and for your insights today. It's, it's giving us some help in understanding what might actually be going on. My pleasure. Stephen Sabin holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. He's also the director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You heard that there was an 11th hour agreement, and that's exactly what it was. A threatened strike at the publicly funded colleges across Ontario has been averted. Global's Tina Trajani reports. There will be no disruption this school year. The two sides met virtually Thursday, and in their joint statement out just before the 12.01 a.m. strike deadline, OpsU and the College Employers Council added work to rule activities had also ended. The union representing 16,000 professors, instructors, librarians, and counselors had warned the colleges there would be a strike if the institutions didn't agree to binding interest arbitration, a process where a neutral third party comes in to find a compromise on outstanding issues. Those issues? Contracting out of faculty work, benefits for part-time staff, and workload. In a statement, Graham Lloyd, the CEO of the CEC, which represents the 24 colleges, said after all everyone has gone through over the last two years, we felt it was essential we put our differences aside and conclude these negotiations without a strike. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, here to tell us a little bit more is Heather Jardine-Tuck, president of OPSU Local 240. She's also a professor of communications and global studies at Mohawk College. Heather, it must have been a pretty long day and night for you. It really was, Shauna. Thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm so happy to be with you and reporting some great news this morning. So what does this mean for the students, first off? Oh, that's the most important piece. For our students, it means that their year will continue uninterrupted. You know, we've got a bunch of students with us that are so resilient. They have experienced so much in the last two years with coming, those that came directly from high school, having had the pandemic impact high school. Then they came to Mohawk College and the rest of our community colleges and didn't quite have the college experience that we would have loved for them to have had. And now, you know, they're going to get to finish their year. Spring is here. We're open a lot more than we were. And it really finally ends the year on a positive note for them. So you've been working without a contract since the end of September. Is that correct? That's correct. And now the work to rule that was instituted because of that, that is also over. But what did that work to rule include? Well, the work to rule came as a result of the employer imposing terms and conditions on Ashana. So it was as a result of that. And work to rule meant that what we did was what we were assigned and only what we were assigned. So there's a lot as professionals that we do in addition to the workloads that we have. We attend committees. We're out in the community. Our counselors go above and beyond with the students that they serve, our librarians do all kinds of educational outreach in the college and in the community. So all of those extras stopped, and we worked solely the work that we were assigned as a form of of protest and as a strike action without withdrawing completely. And that was the intention. We needed to put pressure on the employer, but certainly didn't want to put pressure on our students. So this is the first time. I've been in the system 34 years, and this is the first time we ever did a work-to-rule And it was successful. You know, it put the pressure on the administration. 
but it really took a looming strike to get the parties back together and to agree to the binding interest arbitration. Well, I'm sure before all of this, people may not have been familiar with the term binding interest (laughs) arbitration, and now we've heard of it a lot. Yes, yes. It has been an education in collective bargaining, and I must say that was why this was so critically important to us. Certainly, um, there are features of of this particular contract round that are, are very important, but it was more that with the imposition of terms and conditions, the employer was taking away our rights to collectively bargain a contract. And that's just not okay. So with the binding interest arbitration, when you reach an impasse, like the two sides did, you have a neutral person, the arbitrator, sit and look at each side's proposals, and then the arbitrator will pick from each one and make a contract. So really, Shauna, it's it's a win-win. Nobody, not one side gets everything they're asking for and the other side doesn't get everything they're asking for. It is a compromised position. So that's what the contract that we end up with will look like. And, and that creates more certainty for the students going forward as well. Oh, our students have all the certainty now. They are absolutely going to finish their term. There's no more worry or anxiety. There has been more than enough for all of us, truly, in the past couple of years. And now certainly contract negotiations and labor unrest, all of that is gone. You know, it's a beautiful sunny day. We've got a rally going on here at Mohawk College and a fund, a food drive for our students. Um, and it's just a really happy celebratory day. And that's the mood we want to leave our students with as they finish the term and, you know, go into exams. So it's a really, really positive day. I know one of the issues um, for OPSU in, in the last several years has been the use of part-time instructors at colleges. And uh, I'm wondering if that has been a factor in this contract negotiation and what OPSU wants to do about that. You know what? Absolutely. Um, The use of non-full-time faculty has been an issue. You know, it's been an increasing issue over at least the last 15 years. So in the last round of contract negotiations in 2017, we, we did go out on strike, and it was really important at that time to try to get some security for our non-full-time teachers. So we did that through something called a partial load registry, and essentially it gives folks that have been around for a while and have seniority in their courses, it gives them assurance that they'll have work each term. So, Shauna, for us, this round, it was particularly important to impress upon the colleges the need for full-time. We need the colleges to be staffed with full-time folks so that we have a system that, you know, we've got a good system and we need a better college system that will last for years to come. So that was really important in this round. And also the whole notion of contracting out. That was a big one in this negotiation because we don't have any language to prevent the contracting out of our work. And this particularly impacts our counselors and our librarians because that work needed to be very well defined. And so for our counselors, that definition is on the table this round to ensure that their work is very clearly described and defined. And the no contracting out language ensures that the work of our counselors, our librarians, and our teachers remains within the academic bargaining unit so that people that aren't part of the academic bargaining unit can't be contracted to come in and do our job. Well, Heather, it's time for you to get some sleep. (laughs) I don't know if I'll sleep probably until Saturday, but I so appreciate that uh, you wanted to to talk to me this morning, and and thank you so much for having me this morning, and and really, 
you know, I'll just close by saying we've, you know, I elected to be in this system a long, long time ago, and we have so much to be proud of with our community colleges. They educate the future workers, and our students are going to be the ones that pull us out of this pandemic and that make the difference going forward. So, Shauna, thank you so much for letting me say all of that, (laughs) and I hope you have a great day and an even better weekend. And you as well. Heather Jardine-Tuck is president of OPSU Local 240, also a professor of communication and global studies at Mohawk College. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.